0: Right-Eye Dominant, Right-Eye Dominant, Right-Eye Dominant, Right-Eye Dominant, Right-Eye Dominant, dominant. This is the Right-Eye Dominant Podcast.
1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Right-Eye Dominant Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Toro, Jr. Excited to share this new episode with you today, as I have a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Eline Smithson. And if you are at all interested in the world of photography, you probably have come across her name. And if not her name specifically, then a project that she's involved with called Lens Scratch. So I asked Eline to join me on this episode to talk about her own work. The development of her own personal creative photography, her reliance on the analog and alternative processes, and of course then we jump into Lenscratch, which has been a great online resource for new contemporary photographic work. So Aline and I discussed a lot of things, had a really nice conversation, I'm really excited to share this with you today. So without further ado, here is my conversation. With Aline Smithson. Uh, so, Aline Smithson, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Nick. It's a privilege and pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you. Uh, same. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking your time out to, uh, to chat with me today. Um, I was I I I ha- I do know a lot about your background I've done my research but I think just for the listeners if you want to give sort of the the short version of how you ended up uh in the world of photography uh and it doesn't have to be specific to lens scratch well there I do have a few specific questions to that but um can you just give us a little bit of your sort sure. of bio journey um-
2: I grew up in Los Angeles. My father was a hobbyist photographer with a dark room in the basement and my uncle was an editorial photographer amongst other things so I had a, a knowledge of being a photographer though I was always interested in um, art and painting and drawing and I went to college and studied uh, painting. I mean I fortunately was in an art program where I learned everything. I learned lithography and etching and sculpture and photography and, um, and ultimately settled on painting. Um, after college, I moved to New York to be the next corn and um, got a job in an art gallery and really, that um, really turned me off to the art world. Um, and then was offered a position, um, at, um, Vogue patterns and Vogue knitting magazines. And after working there for about a year, they made me their fashion editor, uh, a job for which I had absolutely no background in Mm -hmm. learned on, learned on the job. And I did that for 10 years. um, and what was unique to that job is that I also had to pick out all the fabrics and work with the dressmakers and have all the clothes made. So I was in some ways also a designer, mm. but then going on the photo shoots, hiring uh, amazing photographers like Patrick de and Horst and uh, Mario Testino and getting to travel all over the world on photo shoots with them. So I did that for 10 years. Um, met my husband, we moved back to Los Angeles. And I, I really didn't know what my next step was. Um, I ended up having two children. I thought I might become a fashion designer, but it was really nagging me to get back to my art practice. And I took a photography class because I was the family historian. And I never looked back, I realized I could make art with a camera and that and i worked alone i didn't have a community a lot of my learning was self taught and um and i've often remarked that those early years in anonymity were some of my favorite years because mm. i had no audience to please i only had to please myself and um and not rushing to get your work out i think is a good thing so and then it just built from there i started teaching um i started th- this photo journal called Lenscratch, showing work and um now the ball has gotten so big i <laughs> can't i can't push it up the hill anymore
1: hmm. but yeah so a uh, couple of things that kind of just you're, you're, the, that sparked in my mind. So you you're, you were working professionally in fashion publishing, uh, working directly with some very, I mean, that's top shelf photographers right there as far as fashion commercial work. Yet at that time, you weren't doing your own, no. doing your own photography at all. The reason why I'm bringing that up is that I, I've had similar I, when I got out of. School, I had I graduated with a BFA in photography, uh, very much fine art focused. Um, realized very quickly that I wasn't going to be able to make a living. And this was, I you know, I was living in Jersey City, New Jersey, like just an easy commute into Manhattan. Um, and then got into sort of like the sort of ancillary uh, industries where my at least my visual. Uh, sense and education informed me so I did a lot of uh, printing and pre-press and uh, I was at a service bureau where we you know would do image prep for the fashion industry right in the fashion district and and it's interesting to think of there there are ways that at least you could make a living that are utilizing probably some of the skills as you know an art student there's an argument for sort of getting uh, experience in industries that at least you can apply some of the things that we. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, I remember some of the photographers remarking that they liked working with me because I had so many creative ideas for the shoots. And, you know, that definitely came from my art side, but I, I learned so much not about photography, but about human nature and watching how photographers dealt with their subjects. And um, if they were someone I'd want to work with again, or if they were a complete nightmare, you know. Um, So those were all really great tools. And the other tool that I learned was that I had to do all the editing of the film. So the art director and I did it together. And um, that really when in my own practice I am a severe editor and I feel like that really helped me Mm. do that so
1: yeah that's it that's that's interesting actually and that that kind of connects with one uh, another thought that I had while you were uh, sharing your story you said you were sort of creating an anonymity for a certain amount of time and that was in a lot of ways that was a luxury to be able to have the time where you can explore and learn without, you know, the pressure of, of any expectation of, of anyone seeing it or what I find interesting. And, and I, I, I have a love hate relationship with social media and Instagram specifically, but it seems like uh, the luxury of having the, the time and being anonymous, it, it feels like that would be a lot harder to uh, maintain that now Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, can you maybe share some thoughts on on Yeah,
2: I mean the that? reason one of the reason was that I was also raising a family. I had small children underfoot. So I had no way to go out and find community. I was literally working, I was at home. All my work was made at my house for years and years. I never sort of left this the, you know, my address. And um, everyone that I photographed was either family or neighbors or um, and that was fine because you have to do a lot of creative thinking to come up with ideas when you're just stuck in one place. Um, But yeah, uh, social media didn't exist back then. And um, probably in 2007, when everyone started having personal blogs, that was um, that was probably the first time people were sort of getting their thoughts out into the world in a different way.
1: right and uh, yes, and without getting in its specifics, we're probably close to around the same age I think we're the, the same generation. So um, I know that um, that lens scratch was sort of a result of, of the blog sort of movement in you know, the, the, the late aughts, you started that by yourself?
2: Yes. I, I had started a blog for my own work. It's kind of like early Instagram and I would post an image and I'd wait for all three followers to like it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, it just felt so hollow to me after a while. Like I was, was I, what was I seeking validation for? Um and then I th- and I was teaching at that point and I thought wow this I could really use this platform to do more and I could learn more. And so ridiculously I made a vow to myself one day that I would write about a different photographer every day. And we're in our 16th year hmm. and we have featured thousands and thousands and thousands of photographers. Um and that has enriched my life profoundly. And I've learned so much about my community. I've connected with so many people. Um, you know, Instagram is great, but it's it's just a quick sort of bite of the pie. And I wanted a nice big piece of pie. So,
1: Yeah. And so as far as um, the, the, you know, the the success of and the, the the growth of lens scratch from when you first started at that sort of kernel of the idea and to where it is now it's a separate thing from your personal photographic work yes um, is there any time when those like those lanes kind of cross over or is it intentional do you have to intentionally kind of like okay This is my personal photography. This is what I'm doing for Lenscratch.
2: I separate them completely. I've never had my work featured on Lenscratch, except in an occasional group show. You know, I'll have one image or something. But um, I have two separate Instagrams. I have two separate emails. I really try to keep my own art practice separate from that.
0: Mm.
1: Let's talk about sort of the your your life as a creative photographer independent of lens scratch and independent of teaching or workshops or things like that because i think we're kind of like we're in the trenches right
2: right i i came to photography as an artist i didn't come to photography as a photographer so i think i gave myself permission to do um anything i wanted to do and um my all of my early work was pretty much portraiture of my family as I said and other people and then I expanded portrait series into other ideas Everything was shot against my garage outside with one hot light um, and. Uh, the series that put me on the map really was an early series of my mother, which was called arrangement in green and black, where I, um, I loved Whistler as a painter. And um, I always loved that composition and it, it was made fun of so much. And I, I thought, but, but this is something worth exploring. So uh, I photographed my mother in 21 different poses, and then this may sound crazy, but I was a darkroom printer, and I had never put a roll of color film in my camera. Mm. But I wanted the series to be in color, and I didn't know how to print color. So, I thought, well, I was a painter. Why can't I paint these photographs? So, they're all hand-painted. Mm. and. Um, I think that, you know, in the history of photography, hand painting had always been sort of sweet florals and landscapes, and this was very unusual. Um, so that work is still being seen all over the world. I'm I'm having a solo show of that um, at the Head On Festival in Sydney this November. Hmm. But it's like, I don't know, I think making fun of your mother is... <laughs> Something that everyone understands. Um, (laughs) So from that point, I just, uh, I think really in about 2007, the way I work began to shift. And that's because of the digital, I call it tidal wave, that completely disrupted my analog practice. Um, My darkroom, my community darkroom that I worked in for years, shuttered literally within weeks Mm. all of the photo labs in LA shuttered um all of a sudden I couldn't get the papers that I had been using film stock was disappearing and I was really angry um and so I started shifting even how I work in the dark room and then slowly slowly I have I have really been t- taking chances and really thinking about photography in a whole different way still an analog shooter I still don't own a digital camera mm. um, but I'm working with found photos I'm distressing photos I'm now combining um, archival pigment prints with cyanotype I'm, I'm really just
1: Experimenting a lot. You're bringing up something as far as like I, I don't want to call it alternative processes because it is, but it isn't. Like I always when I hear alternative processes, I always think of more historic, um, you know, like uh, wet plate or and you know, calotypes or whatever cyanotypes, I guess too. Uh, but then it seems like uh, this trend of what you're what you've been uh, exploring in your work and. Uh, actually been doing a lot myself is hand manipulation of the negative hand manipulation of prints uh collage work combining things still very little if anything done digitally what about it for what's what's the value to you personally in in doing that and i i know you don't do it exclusively but it seems like the majority of your work has some element of that
2: well i look at thousands of photographs every week and there is a ubiquitousness to photography these days I, i see people exploring similar themes over and over making similar pictures over and over and um i've gotten less interested in the straight photograph there's something so freeing to just play and one series that I was working on, um, there was a call for entry for spreads in a book. And it was the first time that I had really thought about creating a spread. And that like started a collaging that I hadn't worked with before. And I was combining my own images with found photography. Um, and I loved it. It was really exciting. and. Um, I have so many ideas, and I just am working on a small book project right now, and there isn't one photograph that I made in the book, mm. uh, and but I still find it so exciting, and, and I love other people's photographs, especially vernacular found photographs. You know, I like to to still take photos, but right now my interest is, is moving away from sort of the straight photograph.
1: You said that you see thousands of photographs uh, a week. Um, You can go down a rabbit hole on Instagram and just keep swiping away. And again, one of the reasons why I'm down on Instagram is because you just get lost in that wash of sort of the deluge of of images and nothing's got, you know, if it captures your eyes for a second, that's probably longer than most images are going to do. But you, you said looking at so many photographs, I, I'm sure you see especially being with lens scratch trends of oh. like kinds of imagery yeah uh, do do you find that the way we're been working with like the found or hand manipulation or whatever you want collage work it, have you found that that's either a trend or you, are you seeing more work like that
2: oh yeah it's it's huge, um a lot of photo sculpture um people who are really. Taking chances, using historical processes, I think there really is a return to being an artist, not a photographer, um, and that's really exciting. I mean, I, my own, when I see when I'm during a show and I see that someone has has taken that, gone to that next level of intervening with the photograph in some way, uh, that's what really gets me excited.
1: It almost reminds me of like the whole pictorialism movement, and then the, the sort of the rejection of that, you know, in the early 20th century to this, you know, it's it's not that there's like the pendulum swings back and forth, but it's almost like, you know, there's a rejection of sort of like what may be the current trend or whatever it is, but it's interesting to kind of look at uh, a lot of sort of the work that, that I'm seeing today that really, that I connect with harkens back to that period of time before you know everything was tack sharp and you know the f64 group the
2: other period that so many people are making work that is similar to is the 70s and 80s i mean people were writing on photographs people were sewing on photographs people people were collaging and we all think this is so unique now but it's already all been done
0: mm-hmm,
2: so um, yeah, I just I think what happened is this is my my thinking that photography was always part of the art world, and then, probably in around the late nineties um education became um they moved photography into their own department and and so that's what took the art out of photography, in my opinion. So everyone was just kind of taking straight photos and and the influence of other genres of all you know, painting and printmaking was lost mm. to that person. And so but now I think it's coming back. So yeah. But I I do think that was a real disservice to to separate photography out of the art program.
1: That's, you know, that's actually, that's something that I, I didn't really think about. But being able to work in a silo of like strictly photography without either having an education or knowledge of other art forms going deeply enough to see where there is influences or commonality between those Genres and I also think about like I had the luxury of being able to take uh, filmmaking classes as well mm-hmm. and just the the you know like the influences of cinema on photography or you know as as much as painting or or uh, uh, other sculpture uh, other art forms and that the idea that that would be sort of not encouraged or just kind of lost or put to the side is that's that's an interesting perspective on on why why maybe i don't want to use the word conservative but it almost seems like in a lot of ways photography just straight photography became formulaic i mean it may
2: i have no idea but that moving it out of the away from other genres may have helped it in terms of establishing it in a museum as an important um important genre to be looked at singularly Mm
0: -hmm. but
2: I you know my influences were John Baldessari and people and David Hockney and people who were artists who were using photography Mm -hmm. so um, I think there's room for it in all areas I mean that's the exciting thing we are we are in the heyday of photography everything is possible everything is doable It's, it's actually a really exciting time. And, um, you know, I I don't feel like the rigid structures are there. People are really looking for people who are pushing the boundaries. Uh, I mean, curators and gallerists, I think people who reject work that they don't understand it's because they don't understand. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll get an email from someone after a lens scratch article and like really disliking the work. And I always write and say, when I don't like something, I have to look harder at it and understand why I don't like it. And, um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of armchair critics that are not open minded.
1: Mm. Um, I, I, I'm just going to point out that you are are enthusiastically uh optimistic about the state of photography that it's and it's refreshing to hear that I think that I consider myself a closeted optimist um but oftentimes it's easy to kind of just look at the state of i don't want to say the state of the world but the state let's say the state of photography or the state of the art world or uh or media and and get discouraged uh, uh and like i said i, I think that um an, if you base your opinion solely on sort of you know the relevance of of uh, how your photo is received on instagram or how many likes you get then maybe that is uh you know it's 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 easy to be pessimistic about things but that you said we're in the heyday or, you know, a golden age of, of, of photography. I, I truly believe
2: making. that. I, I really do. Um, we are not in the golden age of making money. Um, that's the one thing this, that very few people can make a living being a fine art photographer. And, um, you know, I work a lot with the student prize winners and, and I understand that the people coming out of grad school right now, you know, have a huge debt to pay and they can't even apply to, they have no money to apply to shows or go to portfolio reviews. And so there's something that is very off balance about um, that part of the photo world. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, a lot of these portfolio reviews are very expensive to attend sometimes with travel and hotel it can be three thousand dollars for four days and only people that can afford that can go and so then only people that can afford it are getting their work in front of curators and gallerists and editors and so that's not good either um so anyway those are those are things i think about a lot
1: sure the
2: next generation
1: Absolutely. Do you see lens scratch as almost the uh, antidote to that kind of sort of like well, I don't want to call it pay to play, but it's almost like no, you, know, you
2: can call it. There's so many organizations, especially online and you know magazines and stuff that are t- totally pay to play. Mm-hmm. We charge nothing ever, mm-hmm. and we all work for free, um, like you. I've never been paid a cent in the last 16 years for all the work I put in. But I I want no barrier for entry. I want everyone to participate. And um, and I sort of feel like this is my gift to the photo
1: community. I love it. And, and that, it's such a generous gift, really. Uh, I, I actually was able to study with Werner Herzog at his Rogue Film School.
2: I saw that on your website. And then I checked out that rogue film
1: school (laughs) yeah he's yeah just to spend four days with Werner herzog was changed my life but one of the big takeaways from that weekend for me was circumvent the gatekeepers that is his mentality you know and you know this is a guy who is world renowned as a filmmaker but he was always trying to figure out ways of like you know i'm i want to make this film I, i you know I'm, I'm getting so much resistance from sort of the powers that be. How can I find a way literally to yeah. like, get over the fence and, and get have access to the places and the people that I want to, to, to work with and film? Maybe that's a little bit of also sort of the foundation of this podcast is that I, I can't wait for someone to come and give me permission to, or to ask my opinion, to wait for some invitation from some powers that be, whether it's to speak your mind on a podcast or show your work on your website or... I don't know, like I, the DIY aesthetic, uh, you know, approach for me is re- really important. You know, go stage your own show, get get your friends together and find a temporary space and hang, yeah. hang your work. I mean, all of those things are critically, I think, important for the people who can't, you know, especially for the people who can't afford the $3,000 for the portfolio review.
2: Yeah, I've seen a lot more um, young artists creating collectives doing pop-up shows. Um, there's a collective in Portland that um, chooses other photographers and they put out small zines of their work. They're promoting other people. So, you know, they're everyone's trying to find a creative way to to make this work somehow.
1: And what I like about things like that, it's Again, it's 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 maybe not a rejection to online virtual sort of a, a sharing or whatever, but you know if you're publishing a zine, that's a tangible thing. If you're hanging work and inviting people to look at it, that is still, I think, whether it's printed in a book or a zine or it's hanging on the wall, the ways to engage with photography compared to having your photograph. Reduced down to whatever it looks like on somebody's iPhone. And maybe that's also, maybe that's where some of the popularity of these older image making, the return to old methods of image making or the return of analog film or whatever it is, is sort of like we're hungry for something that's real.
2: Yeah, we're hungry to move away from the screen for a while too um, and have something tactile.
1: I want to talk a little bit about some of your work because, you know, definitely uh, the idea of uh, handwork, collage, manipulation, analog, there's, that runs through many of the bodies of work of yours. Out of all of the, the work that really uh, spoke to me, I, there were two, two bodies of work um, the Shadows and Stains portfolio and also the Fugue State can you talk to me a little bit about each of those yeah the
2: shadows and stains was really the outcome of that was in 2007 and eight when I lost my community darkroom and I went to another there was there's only one darkroom left in LA that is not attached to a school and um, I decided I was going to throw out all the rules I Decided I was going to cut my negatives and overlap them. Um, You know, Diebenkorn had been a very um, prominent influence in my painting life. And I loved the idea how he cut up space. And so, and I would add text in the darkroom on top layer. And then I would do washes of oil paint afterwards. So they are all painted on also. And I just spent um, a lot of the spring in the dark room and I have a whole new set of images to add to that collection. Mm. I mean, that's that's the wonderful thing. You know, you think you're done with a series, but you're never really done. So it's, it's great to go back and make more. Yeah. And um, I wanted, I wanted to spend some more time in the dark room. Um, and a lot of the, the text in, initially was um, kind of, Jabs at the photo world. Like um, there's one image that I shot in Death Valley, and it's a man with a camera um, in this landscape, and I put not as interesting as it looks. <laughs> um, you know, I just was so angry with the photo world <laughs> with the digital. Um, so Fugue State uh, really has started a whole series of um, projects that. I only have one other on the website, which is Fugue State Revisited, but I'm working on some other things. When I started really analyzing the future of the photograph and the future of the physical photograph, and even to be more specific, the future of our family um, legacies. And I've noted, I learned a lot from my children, that they have never made a photographic print. Mm. And all of their life is on their phone. And it made me wonder if they will be sitting down with their grandchildren and swiping through images. And that's how the future of the family photo album will look like, Um, which is such a loss. Because Mm -hmm. sitting down with your childhood photo album or your grandparents' photo album, and there's sort of nothing like it, it's it's a really precious thing. And we're losing that. And we're losing the physical photograph. To call attention to that, I did a series of portraits of people I know, I never work with models. Um, and then took my film, and I wounded the film, the emulsion with household chemicals And thinking also that this might be the way that the images would get destroyed in a, in a flood or something like that. And then I, um, scanned them back in in the negative because it showed the corruption more than in the positive. Mm. And then it also allowed me to take risks with color, um, as a painter. So that's, What that series is about, it's really to call attention to this disappearing family photos. And then um, my Fugue State Revisited came about when my hard drive of 20 years of analog scans died during the pandemic. And I was horrified, but I also have all my film. Mm -hmm. So I do have a backup. Mm -hmm. fortunately my computer guy found a backup drive on an old tower so i only lost about 10 percent of the scans but when i sent the hard drive off to get um to see if it could recover anything about half the scans came back corrupted Mm. what was so fascinating was after i got over the shock of it that each corruption was completely unique the, the machine interpreted the pixels in crazy ways. Yeah. And um, I became fascinated with that. So in order to, I started thinking, how can I have these images go into the future? And it's through putting a historical process on top. So I added, I, I cut out silhouettes of portraits that I had done and then added um, cyanotype uh, and um, so now they're physical
1: prints i you you took what well you actually mentioned a a few things that are really relevant to me first first of which um the idea of a generation that their images are only living on a device uh that terrifies me and i and i i anyone I could talk to about their photography, I said, print your work. You know, even if it's four by six little outputs, keep it in a box somewhere or, you know, another drive to, to make your own zine or, you know, you publish your own photo book or whatever it is to have those, not only for, you know, like being a, you know, like a creative artist and to have, you know, tangible representation of your work, but just like you said, the, I mean, like, I have a stack of old family photos from my parents when they were kids and my grand- grandparents who were long gone. And to think that that experience might not be around for a generation or you lose your phone it falls in the I mean like the cloud who knows right the cloud (laughs) the cloud bursts or or your hard drive when you said that I I, I've got I think three hard drives in three different locations that I just like that's my greatest fear but also to have at least have you're shooting films so you have the originals and and I've got binders and binders of my negatives too so uh, but it's it's the the Fugue State revisited, it's it's interesting now looking at that work and he, hearing a little bit more about your process and how those came about because it really like you took what I think a, a lot of photographers would th- be their worst nightmare, and you made something yeah. new and, and original out of it.
2: I, I find that I um I get most excited when I have failure. Mm. And then I think, how can I what can I do with this? So um, yeah, I'm kind of excited to work, but I was so fascinated by the, how the machine is interpreting color and images and moving things around. And um, so I, I, there's a number of projects that I want to work on that kind of follow this idea. And, you know, I've been reading a lot and the Getty Institute um, a lot of the museums are really concerned with a lot of these things too, especially um, hanging on to digital files and, you know, they talk about how just like in music people can't access, um, you know, a lot of the, 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 let's say our CDs, you know, Mm -hmm. once all the CD players disappear, then, you know, they're worthless. And, everything changes so much in technology so you know it's possible that we won't be able to look at a lot of our early photography that are on other platforms Mm. and um you know it is i actually just read an article where um the writer said all forms of communication, writing, you know, everything that is on that has been digitized could potentially be lost. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize that no one is going to be keeping my hard drives going into the next generation or two so that everyone that is making work right now, their work isn't going to last into, you know, probably another 50 years. Mm-hmm. So that's something to, if there was a box of prints there, that would continue on. But these, uh, our hard drives, they're not going to last forever.
1: Right. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is the series, uh, is it Lonesome Doll? Is that? Yes. So uh, is that Hugo, the man of a thousand faces?
2: That is Hugo.
1: <laughs> yes tell me a little bit about that series because um again i think it's a generational thing but when i saw those photos i knew immediately what that character was but didn't to see it used the way that you're using it is fucking genius i love it
2: i was at an art opening at at a gallery that i was in and i i saw this doll on uh the the gallery director's desk and I became obsessed. And um, so I found one on eBay and now I own three, but um, I, there's just something about his face. Now he was put out probably around the time of the TV show. I spy. Mm -hmm. And he kind of came out the same time as the Barbie doll head which, you know, girls could do the hair. And this was for boys to put on the wigs and glasses and disguises. He comes with all kinds of mustaches and things you can, you know. But I just liked him as he was. And he was such a bizarre doll. I really saw him as a metaphor for kids that don't fit in. Mm. And I've actually created a children's book of it, which I think is quite good. And it's almost gotten published like five times. I'm still working on it, but I, it's all about learning to love yourself. Mm. And um, a lot of the images on the website are in the book, but it has captions
1: with each one. I just think about like, well, these things were manufactured for children to play with. And I, I look at your photos and I think that with nothing on you know, without any of the mustaches or the hair or anything. And the way that the figure is sort of in the environments that you're shooting in really does become very poignant and, and conveys a lot of uh, melancholy, I guess, is
2: the the, the best way for it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and so just, it it struck me because I looked at those photos and I recognized the, the doll right away from, from my childhood, although I didn't, have one but i remember it and it just it was like it also made me think like this was like manufactured and sold as a sort of this toy and you're yeah. showing it in this completely different context now and it's just i, I really i don't know just really <laughs> uh think there's there's that, that that body of work is really interesting for sure
2: oh thank you yeah. I love him he's part of the family <laughs> you know when I I, tra- I used to travel with him and it, I was going through a, a TSA or what it, is that what it's called yeah. you know the. and I had three of them in a bag and I thought oh my god what if the guy opens the bag but uh, yeah, my family is my family thinks of him as just like another member of the family
1: good so he's accepted
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: nice. Well, uh, we're, we're, we're winding down and, and I, I think this is probably a nice place to finish. So um, I want to thank you for for taking time out and, and chatting with me. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking to you and hearing your stories and, and talking about photography with you.
2: Well, thank you, Nick. You, uh, this has been wonderful and congratulations on all you're doing for photography. And I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Thank you so much. So there you have it, my conversation with Aline Smithson. Uh, I hope you gleaned a lot of good information from our conversation. It was really a pleasure to talk about photography with somebody who's so passionate and so involved in uh, contemporary photography. And also, it was just really nice to talk a little bit more about analog photography and alternative processes and sort of the day to day trials and tribulations of, of being a, an artist and a photographer in this image saturated world that we find ourselves living in. I will, of course, share links to Aline's work, her website. And definitely for Lens Scratch, which I said is a great resource for anyone interested in contemporary photography. So that's it for this episode. Um, if you have any questions or comments, you can go to my website, which is eyedominantpodcast.com. And aside from the archive of all my episodes, down at the bottom of the webpage, you will find a place where you could send me any questions or comments you might have. I also ask if you could leave a rating or a review on the platform that you're listening to this podcast on. It would definitely help me out, especially on the Apple podcast platform. A review and rating will help get me in front of more listeners. So uh, really appreciate you tuning in. Uh, look forward to the next episode. And until then, this has been the Right Eye Dominant podcast. I've been your host, Nick Toro Jr. Until next time, stay well. This podcast has been a production of right The music for today's episode is brought to you by the Conant Project and Yazar.